I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the book of 1 Samuel, to chapter 15. First Samuel chapter 15. Now this evening we're beginning a new series that, Lord willing, will bring us through the book of 2 Samuel. If I had to guess, I would imagine that 2 Samuel is treated much less frequently in churches, partly because it doesn't have some of the major highlights of 1 Samuel, things like David and Goliath. But 2 Samuel is of extreme interest and significance for us as well. You might be wondering, though, why then are we starting at 1 Samuel 15? And the intention is only to be in 1 Samuel this one evening. We're beginning at 1 Samuel chapter 15 because it lays a footing to understand how 2 Samuel fits into the big picture of the Old Testament and the bigger picture of what God is doing for his people. And that story continues even to the present. It will be helpful for you to recognize from the outset, too, most scholars believe that the books we call 1 and 2 Samuel were originally one document. One document, and the same is believed about Chronicles and about Kings. So how did they come to be 1 and 2 Samuel? Practically, it's believed that it's based simply on the average length of a scroll in the ancient world. You can only fit so much on a scroll, and so you have to divide it somewhere. And so they're numbered, but these are one unified book. And that explains why, if you're ever reading 2 Samuel, if you chose, as we're doing, to start in 2 Samuel, if, let's say I skip this sermon and we just drop in next week, you go, what on earth? There's nothing like an intro. We're just dropping into the middle of a story. Well, that's partly the reason why. The determination to divide Samuel's book at the death of Saul also makes a lot of practical sense. It's a memorable division between the downfall of one house and the beginning of the rise of another house, the house of David. So it makes a lot of sense. But also, it forms a helpful way of drawing a line between two different theological themes. In 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel. In 1 Samuel is a major theme. The Lord shows us the kind of king that we deserve and should expect through sin and through worldly wisdom. And that becomes a bigger picture of the tyranny that lays upon us through our own choice of rebellion, wanting to be our own kings. But then in 2 Samuel, you see the unfolding purpose of God in graciously providing for his people a king who is after his own heart. And so this for us, becomes one of the ways that we look at how God fulfills his promises of grace. David is a picture, a taste of what is to come in the true son of David, who is Jesus Christ. Now, tonight's text in particular, in chapter 15, it records a pivotal moment. This is the moment that the kingdom begins to shift when God reveals he's going to take it from the house of Saul and give it to someone else. And so this is a significant part. Now, what happens, we're not going to read everything up to this, but we're going to start right into a story. You need to recognize God sends Saul and the armies of Israel to bring divine judgment against a people called the Amalekites. This is not simply, say, a political, uh, military defensive maneuver like we might have today. It's more akin to when God sends angels to Sodom and Gomorrah to bring a taste of divine wrath, something of the final judgment piercing down into the present. 
God is free to use as his instruments anyone whom he desires. He can hold them accountable if there's sin involved and how they carry it out. And he chooses to use Saul to bring judgment against the Amalekites. Now, why did the Amalekites have it coming in particular? You could read Psalm 106, and it talks about some of the incredible abominations that their people were guilty of. And the Lord desired to protect his people in the land from what is called syncretism, being blended with that people in doctrine and practice, everything. And so God sends Saul in the army, but instead of bringing total judgment, King Saul does something else. He decides to spare King Agag, and he also decides to set aside, not to kill, but to set aside the best of all the livestock of that people, which admittedly was worth a fortune, a fortune. Why does he do this? Well, seemingly because he wants to have it for himself and to share it with others and to enrich God's people and to show clemency to King Agag. But there's a problem. God sent him on a mission. And at that point, he has no option. It'd be like the angels coming to Sodom and Gomorrah and saying, well, we just want to be so gracious. There is a time for grace and God determines when it is cut off. Grace by its very definition is a thing undeserved. It's not owed to anyone. The hourglass runs down on the time of grace. What happens then? Well, God sends a prophet, Samuel, and Samuel confronts Saul, but Saul immediately begins to make excuses. And it's right at this moment that we pick up in verse 22 where Samuel responds to these excuses. Let's hear the word of the Lord beginning at verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret For he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Let's ask his special blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word, for having preserved through thousands of years a faithful testimony of your work. 
Convict us, Lord, where we need it. Strengthen us as well. Give us a growing faith and a humility towards your majesty. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would suppose that there are few words that carry as much weight in some people as the word regret. Just today I was reading an article and it was listing out things that people consider to be some of the best things you could have in life. And it was contrasting things people think are the best things and then they find out maybe they're not. What are the real best things? And at the top of the list in the top three that they placed there was to die without regret. Regret weighs heavy, but how much heavier when we find it being spoken in the lips of the Lord? Look at verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. What does that mean? Now we need to be clear, the Lord is not like us. He doesn't dwell in time. He is not subject to change. He is impassable. He doesn't make mistakes. He has perfect wisdom. What is this getting at here? Well, when the Lord speaks to us, mere humans, weak people, he comes down and he speaks in ways that we can at least somewhat comprehend what he's talking about. Here, what's being communicated is not that he makes mistakes, but the deep degree of displeasure that he finds when he looks at Saul's reign. What he thinks of Saul and what he thinks of how that relates to his covenant people. The Lord feels deep displeasure. Now, when we come to something like this, you have other ones in the Bible like the anthropomorphisms, descriptions of God as though he had a body. It says in Isaiah that the nose of the Lord grows hot and red. Well, that's to help us understand something about the Lord since he has no body like us. And here this is an anthropopathism, a description of God in terms of human feelings. God deeply regrets the reign of Saul. But then, if that's the case, why did God appoint him? Why did God appoint this person? Because surely God has foreknowledge. He knows that he's going to regret this. And have we not done that too at times? You say, I know I'm going to regret this, but I feel that I must do this now. 1 Samuel chapter 8 tells us that it was a response to Israel's faithless demand for a king like the nations had. 1 Samuel chapter 8 says that they said to Samuel, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And then the Lord goes on and says to Samuel, they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me as their king. And so we have to recognize that in the appointment of Saul, this is an act of discipline upon his covenant people. And the same warning still stands over us. Sometimes as a means of correction, the Lord gives us the things that we clamor to him for. In every prayer, if not spoken, there needs to be a heart of, thy will be done. I don't know what is best. God, if this is actually good for me and my family and the world, please do it. How often, though, our wisdom is not the wonderful wisdom of the Lord. And he corrected his people by giving them someone like Saul. But because it was an act of discipline, it's also an act of mercy and kindness. The Lord is a faithful father, and he was helping prepare his people to appreciate a king after his own heart. 
going from the kind of king they deserve to the kind of king that they need. And so in all of that, it's really this story in the Bible is illustrating a bigger point about who the Lord is and who we are as a people, not simply as individuals, but as the church of Christ. We learn throughout First and Second Samuel the kind of tyranny that results when we place over ourselves worldly wisdom. And when we place over ourselves a selfish desire for the things of this world, a sinful desire. But then also, throughout the book, we see the Lord often through fits and starts, through the most uncanny, sometimes convoluted of means, bringing David to the throne. And we'll see that develop throughout the book. And the Lord, in this sense, is showing you that he is faithful to his promise to provide us the deliverer we need. A king of whom there will be no regrets. And so it's this idea that we begin with this evening to lay out this major theme in the book. And I'll deal with it under two main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them, two main headings. But first I want to bring before you, or rather ask you as a question, what is it that God so regrets about Saul that he would depose him, that he would take him? And here you have Saul begging, please let me... Don't embarrass me. You get the sense of embarrassment. As he's pleading with the prophet, at least walk back with me. Don't let them see you walk away. I'm going to lose some serious face here. Why is God so upset? It's not because Saul was utterly without accomplishments. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, after Saul, King Saul dies, David points out that Saul had lavished riches upon the women of Israel. You'd go take all the spoils and bring it back, and he made the people a comparatively wealthy people. He had safeguarded their borders much more than they had been. He had enriched the economy in different ways. You look at this, and I think in many cases, people would say, this was a good ruler. If our own rulers were as consistent as Saul that we might say, well, that's, you know, better than I expected. And yet the Lord is deeply regretting his position. And so let's reflect on why that is. This is our first main heading. What made Saul's reign so regrettable? And what do we learn from that? Look with me at verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. He turned his back from following me. He has not performed my commandments. The Lord desires something more for his people than temporal, that is in this life, temporal peace or pleasure or worldly prosperity. Unbelieving rulers can bring us those things, but God for his people wants more than that. And we must want more than that. He wants a heart that upholds his holiness. He wants a heart that sees his people not as people to be fleeced, but to be shepherded with love. And although Samuel had appointed Saul, and Saul for a time seemed to do well, more and more, his life was characterized by disobedience. Now, I want to be clear, David also blows it hard on numerous occasions. 
But as a pattern of life, there is a difference, which is very recognizable as you become familiar with the story. Saul is governed by selfishness and by pride. Governed by it. It is the exception that he is spiritually minded. And even when he is, you get a sense that maybe his heart is not in it. Even as he says to Samuel in our text, you know, pray to the Lord your God for me. David's tendency is the opposite. It's to get on his knees when he finally repents, to get on his knees and say, Lord God, against you and you alone have I sinned. And so throughout Saul's reign, he's characterized by turning away from the path of the Lord. But focus in the immediate context. Look at me at verse 13, what his rebellion was. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, this is when Samuel first shows up. Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I still can't comprehend exactly what's going on here because it says in the very next verses that Samuel can hear all of this huge, you know, you picture hundreds or thousands of livestock that he's just passed by, and it says he hears the bleating of all, bleating of all the sheep. And here Saul says, oh, I, did, I did it. I did what you asked me to do. As if maybe Samuel doesn't know exactly what the Lord sent him to do. And Samuel responds in verse 18, The Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Now, I must add here, because in our present age, I think especially, there's the understandable temptation to say, how is this just to wipe out a whole people and and their livestock? Again, I can't convince you of some of the most fundamental things the Bible says. The Holy Spirit can. Do we not believe that Christ is going to return? And that when he returns, there will be judgment, man, woman, and child? All the world will be renewed. And it describes in Peter, burnt up in fire. And I'm not quite sure what it means. But the Lord is perfectly just to use any instrument he wants to bring people to the higher throne for judgment. Here he sends Saul, and Saul doesn't do it. And in the very process, and by the way, you see Samuel, it says that when he discovers what Saul has done, he cried all night over it. And it would seem, because the very Hebrew words indicate a cry of anger, that the prophet is brought into siding with the Lord, not with anyone else. He feels a sense of, how could this person called to represent the Lord do the total opposite of what he's been called to? And so, what is Saul really doing here? He is, whether he fully recognizes it or not, he's sowing the seeds of future rebellion for Israel. He's, by preserving their king, by pres- he's setting the stage for the people who live in the very land to seduce them and to bring them down. And that is what happens later in Israel's history. And not only that, he's communicating a kind of false prophecy. Part of why Israel was brought into Canaan was to give us a picture of the promised land, the age to come. And in that land, there is no place for those who do not know the Lord, who are not covered by his covenant. And so by Saul preserving them, he's really giving a sense that you can be a a king of worldliness and still have a place there. 
And so the Lord is perfectly just to depose Saul. But then I ask you, is there not something of Saul in all of us? Is there not, even for the person who has been sanctified by the Lord, who has been a believer for many years, there remains those barbs, those roots of the natural man that would say, I, I want the benefits of being a believer, but I also want to make peace with this age. I want both the prophet of religion and at times the prophet of rebellion. We do this. Now, of course, most of us here are limited in our means, and all of us are, compared to a king, very limited. We don't have armies at our back, billions of dollars. And so because we don't have the kinds, or rather I can say that we have more checks and accountability than others, we think that we are better than we are. But we look at the root of what's in us and we say, apart from the Lord, I would go the same path. That is the humility that the word works in believers, to say, what I see in Saul, I see in me. And so the point is not to gang up on Saul, say, oh, we're so much better than this guy, we're more like David. No! We are the, what the people got was a reflection of themselves. They asked for a king like the nations and they got a mirror. And when you desire the benefits of sin, what you get is the tyranny of sin as well, to become enslaved to it and ultimately to reap death. The wages of sin is death. The New Testament says again and again, do not be deceived. If you sow to wickedness, you will reap judgment. And so God's judgment upon Saul reveals how much he regrets or he is displeased by sin. That's the first of these main ideas here. And you're going to see that echo throughout 2 Samuel. You're going to see God's displeasure with ruling when that rule is not conformed to his image. Might I insert right here? When God created human beings, he created them as his image bearers, image bearers of the holy king for something tremendous, dignified. He did not create you to be a peasant, completely controlled by others, dominated. He created you with dignity to serve under him, to be royal representatives of his kingdom. And so he has a fitting position to want that of us, and we're going to see that worked out through 2 Samuel as you meet these different characters, Ahithophel and uh, different generals, Abner, and these provide opportunities to ask, what does godliness look like? What are the consequences of faithlessness? But here, the Lord also provides a platform to witness his covenant mercy. And I want you to consider with me as our second and final main heading, how Saul's judgment reveals the grace and the mercy of God. How God reveals it. Now, I've already said that Saul's reign was itself a judgment upon Israel. And we are by nature also under that judgment, apart from the grace of the Lord. In fact, hear with me two passages. Colossians 1.13 says that we were all by nature, quote, under the dominion of darkness. 2 Timothy 2.26 says that people are by nature ensnared by the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. 
And that doesn't mean that every person is as bad as they could be, that they're all obvious devil worshipers. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying that in their heart of heart, they are controlled by a love of this world and by unbelief. Apart from a miracle of grace, they are stuck under Saul. They're stuck in that kingdom. But the very fact that God would dethrone Saul is an indication he does not want his people to remain under tyranny. And the fact that he would promise to give them a better king, and that's what he says here, I'm going to raise up a better king than you, Saul. He doesn't want them to be left in anarchy either. God wants you to have a benign ruler in Christ. He wants his people to have a flourishing, holy, well existence. And it begins in this life, but think what the, what the glory of the age to come shall be. In this whole saga of First and Second Samuel, the Lord is portraying to us that he is committed to his covenantal program. He will give us the king that we need. And soak for a moment in the certainty of this in verse 29. Verse 29, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. He may have been displeased, but he is not like us, stuck in a state of displeasure. He is going to bring about things to a state where he says, it is very good. It is very good. And God gives that promise and he will keep that promise. A little bit later in 2 Samuel 7, we'll see that he makes a covenant with David that he will one day raise up a ruler on his throne who will reign forever. If you were here this morning, you saw that the angel brought the word that this Jesus is the true descendant of David, the true king. And so this book is all about the Lord being faithful to his promise and giving us a small window in an imperfect man, David, about the realities of who God himself is for his people. So these are just some of the major themes that will unfold in this book that we're going to see. God's severe disapproval towards sin being one of them. With that in mind, I want to exhort you, when we read these passages, it is a call to repent. Not every passage tells you to repent of very specific things. Sometimes it's general, and you know your circumstance. Again, look with me at verse 22. where the reference is to Saul having set aside some of these animals for sacrifice, though he'd been told to destroy them. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. There have been plenty of people who gave lots of cash to the church who did not know the Lord and who walked against him. The Lord desires an obedience that comes from faith. And he calls us back to that. But then also he shows us his grace. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Both are present, both judgment at times and mercy. There is one final major theme in this book, and I leave you with this, is the thought. As we move through 2 Samuel, you're going to see something happen. You are going to see that there is a long process of David coming to the throne and then seeing the kingdom fully under his power. From the time, in the very next chapter, after 
1 Samuel 15 and chapter 16, God sends Samuel to anoint David. But it's a long time before he actually comes to be recognized, first by Judah, and then it's another seven years after Saul's death before David comes to the throne and is recognized by everyone as king. During that time, you are going to see all kinds of antics. You're going to see Joab and Abner, generals on different sides, doing all kinds of things to try to secure the throne, sometimes very evil, sometimes noble. You're going to see men and women involved in convoluted plots to try to get David on the throne. And yet throughout, you, it's, it's striking. Because David is not above great sin, it's striking to see that in his coming to the throne, he studiously avoids sinning to do it. He goes way out of his way to maintain peace, to try to seek peace among the people of God. And it is so in Christ's kingdom. This was all orchestrated by the Holy Spirit to provide something of a picture for us about how the kingdom of Christ is developing. Between his coming, his ascending to the right hand of God the Father and high, and when we shall see him, standing upon earth, glorified in his kingdom, it is a big, at times, convoluted mess. He uses the antics of popes. He uses the persecution of emperors. He uses the well-intentioned but bizarre contributions of some of his people. Church, if you know church history at all, it's like that. And yet Christ is seated with perfect peace, waiting As it says in Psalm 110, verse 1, David speaking, and the book of Hebrews tells us this was a prophecy of Christ. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Christ is waiting, but he will reign, and it will be clear. So these are some of the main themes of 2 Samuel. May the Lord apply them to our hearts and give us Great faith when we see things on earth that just look sideways. The Lord reigns. Let's ask his blessing even now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for having given to us whole books showing people like us, people who are so weak and flawed, and yet you use them for your purpose. We ask this evening that you would please apply to us the things that we've heard, Bring them back to us throughout the week. Help us to long for your kingdom. We thank you for your word which says he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. We ask that that would be our true joy. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.